This episode of Navarra Live is brought to you by listeners like you. Thank you. Good evening and welcome to Navarra Live. My name is Aaron Bastani. Tonight I have the immense pleasure of being joined by Moya Lothian McLean. Moya, how are we? I'm okay. I'm keen to go through the stories with you today. Yeah, I couldn't think of many better people or anybody better uh, than your good self for the stuff headed our audience's way. It's a month since the October 7th attacks by Hamas, and there's still no end in sight to Israel's bombing campaign and invasion in response. We'll be discussing that tonight. Here's what's coming up. A Barnaby Rain has taken Jacob Rees-Mogg to task over Israel's war in Gaza, how the government is freaking out at a potentially huge march for Palestine this weekend, and Israel have announced today what they plan to do in relation to Gaza at the end of their military action there, whenever that may be. Stay tuned for all of that. Charles III has given his first King's speech in the House of Lords. That is when the monarch outlines the legislative agenda for the government that rules in his name over the following year. But before that, 500 Republicans appeared on his route into Parliament to let the King know what they really think about the monarchy. Some seen that. Now, after that pretty rocky start, it was relatively smooth sailing for the king. Surrounded by the usual ludicrous pomp, Charles delivered the speech written for him by Sunak's government. Charles is something of an environmentalist, and there was one moment he may have found the speech rather difficult to deliver. Legislation will be introduced to strengthen the United Kingdom's energy security and reduce reliance on volatile international energy markets and hostile foreign regimes. This bill will support the future licensing of new oil and gas fields, helping the country to transition to net zero by 2050 without adding undue burdens on households. That diamond, by the way, on the front of his crown there is the... uh Kuinur, one of the largest diamonds in the world. Don't ever let anyone tell you that the royal family have no money. But Charles, like the rest of us, was probably finding it a bit difficult there to understand how new oil and gas is going to help the transition to net zero by 2050. However, what it definitely won't help is our wallets. On BBC Breakfast, Energy Secretary Claire Coutinho said this about the government's plans. And how will these plans that you're talking about affect people's energy bills, which I'm sure lots of people who are watching this morning are mostly concerned about? Well, I mean, it has been a very concerning time for energy bills. This is much more about security of energy supply and making sure that we have the oil and gas that we need for the future and where where we do need it, making sure that it comes from here. But what it will do is ensure that the revenue that we can get from having a thriving oil and gas sector and all the supply chain underneath it, that the revenue that raises, like I said, we're expecting £50 billion to be raised over the next five years. That can be invested in things like public support, uh, public services uh, and and welfare and support for people when they're struggling as well. Also on the agenda was the NHS and record-breaking waiting lists. Working with NHS England, my government will deliver its plans 
to cut waiting lists and transform the long-term workforce of the National Health Service. This will include delivering on the NHS workforce plan, the first long-term plan to train the doctors and nurses the country needs, and minimum service levels to prevent strikes from undermining patients' safety. He just looks so bored there, doesn't he? And also, just, just wear a suit. This is kind of strange. Uh, so anyway, that was a promise to deal with today's outrageous NHS waiting list. We're almost 8 million people, yes, 8 million people, are waiting for treatment. But only at some point in the fairly distant future, after an overhaul of NHS staffing levels has been carried out. There was also one mention of minimum service levels there, hugely important. That bill already passed into law in July, so hardly new legislation for next year. Instead, it's the government using the King's speech to blame striking medical staff rather than chronic underfunding for people not being able to access the treatment that they need. While the Minimum Service Level Act is now law, ministers haven't yet set what the minimum service levels will be for each sector. They reportedly want to rush those laws through by Christmas, with the BBC reporting these details. Under new legislation, 40% of train services will be forced to run during industrial action. Other promises appearing in the speech included increasing prison sentences and giving more powers to the police and security services. The Tories' anti-BDS bill was in there too, seeking to stop public bodies from divesting from Israeli companies and boycotting Israeli goods. There was also the phasing out of the sale of cigarettes and a new tax on vapes. But also included was the long-standing promise to put an end to no-fault evictions, even though it is still likely to meet significant resistance. The Mirror reports that ministers have been accused of delaying the bill over many years in a, quote, grubby deal, with Tory backbenchers, many of whom are, you guessed it, landlords. One of them is Tory MP Nick Fletcher, who rents out six houses and four flats in South Yorkshire. Last month, he told Parliament this. The simple fact of the matter is that the more bureaucratic and difficult we make renting for landlords, the more incentive they have to sell up and reduce the number of properties on the market. The fewer properties there are for rent, scarcity means the rents will increase. Uh, Fletcher, they're omitting the small fact he's a member of a government failing to build anywhere near enough homes to meet supply regardless. Slight detail, I know. Uh, there were some important omissions too. Uh, the Tories have long promised to ban gay conversion therapy, but there was no mention of that in the speech. But in better news, Suella Bravman's recent announcement of a ban on rough sleepers using tents didn't appear either. Of course, many of today's announcements will be moot if a general election is held in the spring, although for now the most likely date is either May next year in 2024 or Halloween next year. Moya, uh, should we be getting spooked at how lightweight the King's speech was this year? I think if, it, you know, with this government, we'd probably be complaining if there was actually more stuff in the King's speech. But yeah, what most analysts are picking up on out of that speech is what was actually left out. So there were no big bills to improve the future prospects of our country, which is very funny because Rishi Sunak, once again, in his introduction to the King's speech, did what he'd done at Tory conference and he positioned himself as this, you know, candidate of change, this candidate who's new blood and is bringing all this radical stuff. He said, we've turned the corner over the last year. We've put the country on a better path. Uh, you know, our 
immediate priorities and not the limit of our ambition. These are the foundations of our plan to build a better future for our children and our grandchildren. But what he seems to think is the better future are these tiny, narrow little bills that tink around the edges of big existential problems facing the country. So we had, you know, the smoking bans, the attempts to outlaw BDS, but there was nothing on sort of employment, nothing really on the NHS that was about reforming the system. The only thing that we saw that vaguely was about making people's lives on the grounds better was the renters reform bill. And as you've pointed out there, it was massively watered down. It, it was a really confused little set of policies, just like I think the Conservative Party is becoming. And the biggest difference you saw with Labour, which I think is an interesting point that lots of commentators were making, there was not much here that differentiates the Tories between before that differentiates the Tories from Labour was the oil and gas, this annual license system where Labour have said, oh, we're not going to issue any new oil and gas licenses, but we will honour the ones that are already out there. But this this thing that was picked up, the idea that you know there was nothing in that bill, the nothing in the King's speech that really differentiates the Tories from Labour, I think is actually shows the limits of Labour's imagination and political scope at this point in time. After this speech came out, then you had Keir Starmer saying, where's the employment bill? Where's the you know backing for workers and scarce stuff? But they themselves, Labour, haven't really promised any of these big radical changes. They've got all these plans and they haven't said, you know, what we're going to do to fund these. They're running off this fumes of economic fiscal responsibility, which mirrors what Starmer called this King's speech, economic miserabilism, while also saying, but we will do change, we promise. Um, and I think once again, you know, people are saying, oh, well, this is not going to get people to the polls for the Tories. But if Labour are not offering anything different, it's not going to get people to the polls for them either. What we're seeing again is the shrinking of the political imagination. And it really demoralises me, to be honest. There was a sort of argument being made that this is so lightweight because the Tories are planning to um, call an election next spring. I mean, I, I find that unlikely for a bunch of reasons. But what's your read on that? And in addition, is it just me or does Prince Charles look absolutely bored out of his mind. Give me your opinion on that probably less important uh, issue. The things that we know about Prince Charles is that he's actively quite keen to be a statesman with real power. Something that he won't really get. He's got, you know, this soft monarchical power, but he wants to get involved with the day-to-day -day running of the country. Sadly, I think Prince Charles <laughs> would have been much better suited to be one of the autocratic monarchs that we used to have because he really wants to actually get involved in politics, not that I think that he should. Um, so I imagine sitting there having to read out the words of an uninspiring government who his own politics, what we know of them, is quite opposed to the, the policies that were being put forward by Rishi Sunak's um, administration, particular environment. Of course, he's bored out of his mind. He's more than bored out of his mind. He's somebody who has is not uh, in the past held his tongue when criticizing the current government. And I don't mean that to frame him as some sort of, you know, radical king who hereditary monarch. I, it just means that he is someone who likes to call a spade a spade. And when he doesn't agree with something, he usually says that. You can't really do it when you're sitting on the throne in this stupid grand tradition that you've been born into. Um, but regardless of that, in terms of the lightweightness of this deck, it could be because they haven't, you know, they're coming up to an election. But surely when you're coming up to an election, the point is that you're putting a load of stuff in there to keep mm -hmm. people voting for you. Like you're putting, you're, you're setting out what your vision is for the country. This is this was an opportunity for them to do that, to really show that sort of change candidate that Rishi Sunak keeps positioning himself as and hasn't shown any evidence of. I think it's actually because they're massively out of ideas. And, you know, we saw them remove the Suella Braverman tense thing. Great. What is interesting about that is there's this 
conspiracy theory going around that's being reported in some of the broadsheets that Braverman's why she's being such a loose cannon beyond the fact that she's a you know a terrible politician who thinks of herself much more highly than she actually performs is because she is trying to goad Rishi Sunak into sacking her so she can launch that leadership bid and challenge him for the leadership of the Tory party. Um, so I think it's about a party divided. It's a party that's run out of ideas completely. And it's about a party that's not really serious about winning the next election, I don't think. I think they have kind of quietly accepted their doom and are now preparing for opposition and people are moving themselves into the places they want to be in um, when the next election comes around and when they inevitably, sadly, are out of government. Uh, but what what we're suffering from is the fact that this is essentially a lame duck government, if you can adopt that, adapt that term for this situation, who haven't got really any interest in governing anymore, making the country better for the people they're elected to represent, but instead they're setting themselves up for their you know, careers after the next election. I think that's so well put. I think that's so well put. It is a very strange time in British politics. Maybe that's why Mr. Charles Windsor looks so bored. Next story. The government is losing its mind at the prospect of vast numbers of people marching for Palestinian rights and a ceasefire in London this Saturday. But after reportedly coming under pressure from ministers to ban the march, the Metropolitan Police Service posted this statement on social media. The risk of violence and disorder linked to breakaway groups is growing. This is of concern ahead of a significant and busy weekend in the capital. Our message to organisers is clear. Please, we ask you to urgently reconsider. It is not appropriate to hold any protests in London this weekend. It's frankly bizarre to see the police claiming the right to decide what is and is not appropriate, and almost certainly an overreach of their powers. After all, their job is to uphold the law, not tell people what is tasteful. This isn't Iran, and they aren't the morality police, at least not yet. But that post may reflect the kind of pressure they're coming under, with Home Secretary Suala Bravman having branded the event a, quote, hate march. However, not every Tory minister is happy with that kind of language. This was Justice Minister Alex Chalk on Radio 4's Today programme. Does the government want those marches banned? Well, ultimately, it's a matter for the police. And the police came out yesterday. And they, of course, have to weigh up a number of competing considerations. Of course, there's the right to protest, which is important, but also concerns about public safety. Now, they have been very clear that having weighed all that up, their strong request is that these marches don't take place. And we support the police in that. We do think this is an incredibly important right, time so you, in our you, calendar. So you don't want these marches to take place? As we, you as a government, and we, of course, the Home Secretary has called them hate marches, you, you, well, you want them to be banned? Leaving aside the, the, that wording for a second, we want the, the recommendation well, that, of the that police. That is wording that comes from the government, uh, isn't it? If we it want, comes from the Home Secretary, we want the recommendation of the police to be uh, followed. We think that it's wise advice. We think it takes account of all the competing considerations and that it should be followed. It, are they hate marches? Look, I mean, there is no doubt there are elements on these marches that I'm afraid uh, are espousing hate, whether it's. Um, from the river to the sea. But you know, equally, there will be those people who are there expressing their anguish at some of the untold suffering. Now, the concern must be whether those people who have the you know, perfectly legitimate intentions and concerns are directly or indirectly supporting those I mean, people again, who are espousing that's hate. Odd, that's, isn't that's it? The if the Home Secretary calls them hate marches, and you very clearly don't call them hate marches, you say there are some who are hateful there, but to others perfectly legitimate. That, that, it, it, that seems to be more than confusion at the heart of government. No, it's, it's not confusion. I think that's, um, it's an issue of semantics. Listeners, viewers, it is not an issue of semantics, anything but 
Swala Bravman is saying this is a hate march. The people on it are hateful. Mr. Chalk is saying that actually some people have quote-unquote legitimate concerns. Something can't be both legitimate and hateful at the same time, one would imagine, uh, unless you were calling for, I don't know, some kind of a revolution. Uh, while Alex Chalk tried to moderate the rhetoric around the march, the Home Secretary chose instead to ramp it up. In response to the statement from the Metropolitan Police, she said this, I welcome this statement from the Met Police. The hate marchers need to understand that decent British people have had enough of these displays of thuggish intimidation and extremism. A thuggish intimidation and extremism. I'd like to see the evidence of that. Despite the advice from the police, the march's organisers are not backing down. Speaking on Radio 4, director of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, Ben Jamal, said this. I understand the march is going to go ahead. Yes, that's our intention. Um, I mean, we do meet. We've been organising marches uh, for some years, but uh, in the last few weeks, we've organised uh, a number of demonstrations attended by hundreds of thousands. I think in total, more than a million people have attended the demonstrations. Uh, we regularly meet with the police to ensure public safety in organising those. Uh, we met with them today. It is true that at that meeting, they asked us and they said, we're not telling you to do this we're asking would you consider postponing for a week we we made clear why we didn't think uh, that was necessary um it is not true that they said to us that it was inappropriate to be demonstrating this weekend uh, and although they've made reference in their statement to breakaway groups uh, that they think may cause disruption uh, they gave us no evidence for why they think that risk is increased any more than on the previous marches. And they um, affirm to us their view, which they've repeated in their statement, that the marches have been largely overwhelmingly peaceful. I think across about six or seven marches, there have been about 60 arrests made. So, so do, do we you, don't understand the rationale for why um, it could not be managed appropriately. Do you doubt them then, when they say that, do you doubt that they are... I think what relying very, on, on, very... on their evidence that they have gathered intelligence to, to make that assessment? We asked them for details of that, and they weren't able to provide. They made reference to um, concerns about that previously. But look, the police have been uh, putting conditions on these marches, we think unnecessarily, uh, but conditions that um, make someone liable for arrest if they leave the route of the march. Uh, across all of the marches, they've not had to employ those conditions. Nobody has been arrested for leaving the route of march. So we're not we're not quite sure what the difference would be. What we are conscious of, James, is that the police have been put under considerable political pressure by the prime minister and the home secretary with the comments they have been making, and it is difficult to see the uh, that the request from the police is not linked to that. So at the moment, the march will be going ahead this Saturday, departing at noon from Marble Arch. Protesters will make their way from there to the US Embassy, well away from any activities around the Cenotaph marking Armistice Day. I should say that the US Embassy is in Nine Elms. It's on uh, a location very far away from Westminster. Not very far away, but it's south of the river. I mean, that should give you some idea of uh, the distance between the two spots. But of course, Sola Bravman knows this. Uh, that's a point that fellow Tory Baroness Saida Warsi made on Sky News. 
Do you have concerns about the protests and should the police be taking a heavier, heavier approach to them? Um, I think there are some things we need to say. Israel is not Netanyahu. The Palestinian people are not Hamas. And the protesters on the streets of London are neither protesting for Hamas nor are they hate marchers. I think this really clunky way of trying to of trying to kind of put everybody together into these groups and then set up these tribal rivalries is something that the government's got to stop doing. Um, I've spent the last 48 hours talking to the organisers of the protest. I've spoken to people within the military. I've spoken to people within the Met um, to see where this is all going to you, eventually. Um, what do you make of Suella Braverman? She told uh, our correspondent Ali Fortescue, uh, anyone who vandalises the cenotaph on a protest uh, should be jailed faster than their feet can touch the ground. Sophia, somebody whose grandfather fathers both served in the British Indian Army who served in the wars, uh, somebody whose great uncle was taken prisoner of war, somebody who still has family serving in our British armed forces. There is nobody like my family who understands the value of the sacrifices that were made and the value of our armed forces and the value of the cenotaph. And that's what, and that's why what disgusts me is that these protests have been planned for weeks. They were in discussions with the Met Police for weeks. The route was well away from the cenotaph for weeks. And yet last week, the Home Secretary decided to embolden and make this a political issue, to embolden the far right, to make this a political issue, knowing full well, and she'd been briefed by the Met, of what the route of the march was going to be and the fact that they didn't have concerns at this stage. She has now made this a live political issue. Why do you think she's done that? And on, because that's the way she operates, right? She, she fights culture wars. She doesn't fix things. Well done, Baroness Warsi. You have summed up Soella Braverman's modus operandi there in one sentence. She doesn't fix things. And indeed, the Conservatives, really, for most of the last 13 years. So rare and refreshing, by the way, I have to say, to hear a Conservative, a senior Conservative, actually talking a modicum of sense. It is very, very rare and very, very welcome. Uh, Warsi went on to give this assessment of Braverman. I think she's dangerous and she's divisive. If you look at her rhetoric, it is always about pitching A against B. She, you know, this. I, I've said this before. We have now, sadly, some of my colleagues in government who, who project as patriots, but they are indeed arsonists. They set this country alight. They pit community against community. They create these fires. And that is not the job of a government. The job of a government is to keep us all safe. And you do that by creating a sense of ease, not by fighting culture wars. So the question for us now is, and when I've been speaking to the protesters, the question for them now is, if we postpone, and they were in discussions with the Met on this, what happens when formal organisations step away from an organised march and we end up with informal groups, of which many have made arrangements to travel down here, so there's no proper policing, there's no proper management, there's no formal umbrella bodies, do we create a more difficult situation on Saturday than if we continued with a formal march? So my advice to them has been, if you can postpone in a way which effectively means the police can police any fringe groups that may then fill that vacuum, that would be a good approach to take. But what we don't want to do is formal organisations to step back and make the job of the Met Police far harder. And all because the Home Secretary decided to make this a political issue and fight yet another culture war, a war that she didn't need to fight. Wow. Wow, if only Keir Starmer could drop heat like that. And I'm not just saying that because, you know, oh, why are you blaming Labour, having a go at Labour, when the Tories are doing something wrong? Absolutely correct. But look, you just saw three minutes of, of an interview there. 
Incredible how much stuff she condensed into it, right? Incredible. She referred to the, the front bench, the government, which she's in the same party as, as arsonists. Incredible. And then she says quite explicitly, and I hadn't heard this heard, I haven't heard this really made yet at a, a sort of elite level in broadcaster and print. She's saying that the Home Secretary, by the way, the Home Secretary is really at the top of the Metropolitan Police Service. The, the chief of the Metropolitan Police Service has to answer to the Home Secretary. The Home Secretary is the person who is maximizing the chances of a public order situation. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. It's like, it's like the Health Secretary releasing a bioweapon into the, into the ether. Okay? It's like the, the Transport Secretary uh, blowing up a rail line. This is the absolute opposite of what you'd be expecting from somebody in that position. Uh, it's important to say it's not just Tory baronesses who support the Palestinian cause, however. Uh, these familiar left-wing faces are also turning out for Saturday's march. Hello, I'm Mick Lynch from the RMT. I'll be marching on Saturday and speaking to the demonstration for peace in Palestine. Hi, I'm Matt Rack from the FBU. We'll be marching on Saturday calling for a ceasefire. Hi, I'm Daniel Kebedi. I'm from the NEU, and I will also be marching on Saturday, calling for a ceasefire and peace in the Middle East. And Moya, I know you, you're planning to be there on Saturday. Why, why is it important that people demonstrate in support of Palestine in London this weekend? I will indeed be there on Saturday, and I've been there every single Saturday. There's been a march or a rally thus far, because I know what Mick, what Mick Lynch knows, what Saida Warsi knows, what every other group that will gather in London and across Britain knows that supporting the plight of Palestinians goes beyond tawdry left or right politics or culture wars. And it goes right back to the basics of what does it mean to be human? What do we want it to mean to live on this planet with, you know, for me and many others, that is about recognizing the humanity of others and their right to dignity, their right to equality and their right to live lives free of oppression. And I think that's why you've seen such a large, you know, cross-section of society turn up to these protests. I've been on many marches <laughs> for my sins. I've been on many, many marches uh, since I first started protesting. And these are some of the biggest that I've ever seen. I, I didn't go on the Iraq war marches because my mother didn't bust me down, sadly, like other parents did. But I've been on, you know, a real smorgasbord of protests. And I turned up also to the Brexit protests, the anti, the ones that were pro-Brexit to see what they're about. I turned up to, um, you know, the statue defender protests because I want to see what these gatherings are like from, you know, all across the political spectrum. And these marches have been some of the biggest and some of the most peaceful and some of the most harmonious that I've ever seen. And that's not to say that protest is only legitimate if it's peaceful. I don't believe that. And I also you know, objected to the bit of Baroness Warsies when she was like, I would advise them to postpone. Why should we postpone? Why should we postpone this? this these marches have brought together huge swathes of people because they understand what they're really about, which is standing in solidarity with an oppressed population that is currently um, under a campaign of ethnic cleansing. I'm going to call that it's ethnic cleansing, a genocidal campaign and standing up and saying, not in my name. And, you know, one of the key points about this is, and I don't think we've mentioned this yet, is these, these objections, these, these fabricated objections that people like Suella Braverman are making and that the police are underlining by even saying perhaps it's not appropriate to march for a ceasefire on a day literally named for ceasefire is that nothing is actually even happening on Armistice Day on the 11th 
of November. First of all, Remembrance Day, the 12th, that is always when any sort of events, parades are planned. That's when the cenotaph will be filled with veterans. That's when all the wreaths will be laid. And even if it was, I would still say, you know, there should be marches planned because I can't think of anything more appropriate. What happens on Armistice Day is a two-minute silence at 11 a.m. We're not even starting this march until 12.45 a.m. And even then, I would think it would be incredibly powerful to see what will hopefully be about a million people walking through from high to US Embassy, nowhere near central London in the Cenotaph area, by the way. But I think it'd be incredibly powerful to see a million people walk through in complete silence, remembering all the victims of conflicts past and conflicts present and the marching in the name of the Palestinians. I cannot think of a more appropriate thing to do than that. You use the word genocide and ethnic cleansing there, Moya. There was an IDF source um, over the weekend that said 20,000 people had died in Gaza, 20,000. Now, this is a territory with a population of 2.2 million. So you're, you're therefore guessing to 1% of the entire population, if that source is correct, they of course may be wrong. Hamas is saying 10,000. Uh, 1% of the entire population being killed in a month. I mean, that is a, a serious number, isn't it? And I think when people use the word genocide or ethnic cleansing, the, the rebuttal is, oh, well, people are just trivializing these words. They're just saying things that don't mean them. They don't know what they mean. When you say genocide, ethnic cleansing, Let's drill down into that just for a moment. Why are you choosing those words? I'm choosing those words because we are seeing, I think, that the last count, it was something like 47 entire families that are wiped out. And we're not just seeing, you know, the deaths of lots of people en masse, which would be very tragic on its own. We are seeing the future of this population of people, the Palestinian people, wiped out for good. We are seeing children who are almost half of the population of Gaza um, and make up a significant amount of casualties being wiped out. Those are children who would be carrying on that group of people. They are carrying on that ethnic line. If you kill the children, you kill the future of a demographic. Um, and just to give context to that figure of 10,000 plus killed in a month, Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine launched in February 2022. Horrific levels of casualties. By September 2023, that is more than a year later, 9,000 people have been killed. And I don't say that to, you know, minimize what those, casualty mean, what those casualties mean, what those individual 9,000 lives, people with hopes, dreams, loved ones, their deaths, their loss from the world means, but instead to contextualize what it means that 10,000 Palestinians out of a population of 2.2 million in the Gaza Strip have been killed in under a month. There is, and, you know, millions more have been displaced. There is no other word for it than genocide and ethnic cleansing. If you, I've read, you know, I've, I've read, unfortunately, like quite a bit about genocide's past, Rwanda in a particular one. And the scale of deaths in Rwanda, I think, was higher than is happening now. But it's the exact same thing. You displace a population, you clear them out, and you kill the people who won't leave. Who is left? Who is, who is left of that population? The only word for it is genocide and ethnic cleansing. Yeah, there's still a couple of hundred thousand people in North Gaza, which is where Israel is saying, you know, you have to leave. And let's say it's 10,000 people have died. What's the exchange rate at, 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 at which, you know, at which point the Israelis will stop? 100,000? 200,000? Uh, that isn't a question that's being asked by the international community or our, or our leaders, which frankly is terrifying. Next story. Uh, Barnaby Rain has appeared on Jacob Rees-Mogg's GB News show. He was on to discuss Armistice Day and the protest planned this Saturday in London demanding a ceasefire in Gaza. It's fair to say Barnaby came straight 
out of the gate. I'm sure you understand why Armistice Day is a very special day, that it's one where the war dead are commemorated. Now, I'm a great believer in freedom of speech, that people have the right to protest. But isn't it wise not to protest on a day that is held aside for something special? With all due respect, Jacob, I don't think you're a great believer in freedom of speech or that you understand much about Armistice Day. It's literally called Armistice Day and we're marching for an armistice. So ask yourself this question. Who are the, pe who are the people who better represent the traditions of Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon? Who are the people who better represent the traditions of horror at the carnage of war? Is it a government that is funding and supporting a state that has murdered over 10,000 people now in Gaza, including 4,000 children? Or is it those of us who will pour onto the streets from every community well, across Britain to say that we want the massacre to stop? Well, first of all, you're taking the Hamas figures, which we know are unreliable, and that they've exaggerated some of the figures for their own propaganda purposes. Jacob, every and single started, by the Gaza Health Ministry has an Israeli-issued ID number the, attached to it, Jacob. The, and he's the, saying those figures the, are untrue. The, the Gaza Health Ministry is part of the Hamas state. It's a Jacob, Hamas an Israeli-issued ID number attached to them. Did the, you know that? The, the figures that are coming out of Hamas Did you know are propaganda. That? Did you know they have an Israeli-issued ID they number They are part of them. the Hamas state. That's the key point. The Israeli number is an irrelevance. But let's David, get let's get on every let's get single, on to what every single name of a human on. being released let's, is a verified name, and we've seen pictures of hundreds, start, sometimes thousands of people. Let's start with how this began. When their homes were bombed, when their hospitals okay, were bombed, when the bombed, when their camps were The bombed. head of the UN points out that Hamas is using people as human shields. So terrorists are hiding behind children, the ale, elderly, and the unwell. And that really okay these terrorists. This? Are you really okay with this? With terrorists, really of okay? course, I'm not okay with terrorists using no, human Jacob, shields. It's disgraceful. It's wicked. Are you really okay with the bombing of a refugee camp? So Barnaby there is saying that we've seen 10,000 civilian casualties, 4,000 of which are children. Rhys Morg doesn't believe those numbers because they're Hamas figures, despite each person, as Barnaby says, having a distinct number given to them by the Israeli government, a bit like a national insurance number in this country. But here's the thing. Senior Israeli sources over the weekend said 20,000 had died. So Gaza says 10,000, Israel says 20,000, but Jacob Rees-Mogg says they're both wrong. What's the figure he wants to settle on? 5,000? 500? Uh, next up, Rees-Mogg asked if Barnaby would condemn Hamas. Hamas. Just answer the question, because well, we're on the streets because we're not okay with it. Are you okay with no, the bombing of a refugee? You're country? on the streets supporting, giving succour to people who carried out the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. Are you okay with that? That's okay. where it started. We're on the streets to oppose the bombing of refugee camps, hospitals, homes, where, schools. Where, Jacob, where, did, this, left, where did this left, start? Well, it started in 1948 with the ethnic cleansing of 700,000 Palestinians. When this started... Left, on the 7th of no, October with the murder with the of, of 1,300 people and babies being beheaded. You're justifying that. Jacob, there are 2.2. Of course not. I okay, want, I want, so will you criticise Hamas listen, as terrorists? Listen, listen, I want the violence to end. Here's how the violence can end. There are 2.2 million people penned into an open-air prison in Gaza. The significant majority of those people are not from Gaza. They're refugees who were ethnically cleansed from their homes in 1948. Now, I know that the people you admire are fine with that. Winston Churchill said he didn't mind when a superior race displaced an inferior one. No, That's how he talked about what happened no, in Palestine. But, but some of us mo feel from most, all over Britain... Most of the people... But you, you've had plenty of time. Most of the people living in Israel have had to go there fleeing persecution where they lived, and mainly persecution in the Middle East. 
No, actually, that's yes. not true. I, they're mainly Sephardi I mean, Jews. Some of, some of my family members who live in yeah. Israel came from, from Europe. Yes, but, but the majority didn't. The majority why, came from the Middle East. Do you know East? why my family went to Israel, Jacob? It's because white Christian Europeans who believed in tradition and hierarchy spent 2,000 years excluding and then massacring us. So I will take no lectures from white Christian Europeans who believe in order and hierarchy about anti-Semitism. Wow. Scorching hot. Wow. Wow. He went there. Uh, important to say that Jacob Rees-Mogg is, is broadly correct that actually there's a large number of Jewish people in Israel who are Mizrahi. They're from elsewhere in the Middle East and West Asia. However, the people that founded the State of Israel in 1948 were overwhelmingly European Ashkenazi Jews. That is what Barnaby is right about. Now, stay with me for one moment because we've got more from that clip of Barnaby coming your way in a second. But I just want to say that over the past month at Navarra Media, we've been working harder than ever to make sure we are providing thorough, truthful analysis and reporting on the atrocities in Gaza as they unfold. Uh, today, my colleague Michael Walker shared a few of these key moments from the last four weeks over on NavarraMedia.com. And the reason that our journalism differs so utterly from mainstream outlets is because of the way we're funded. We do not have any corporate partnerships to appease. We don't have any big donors restricting what we can and can't say. We're entirely funded by you, our audience. So thank you to our regular supporters for making this organization happen. And if you're new and you value our journalism, then head over to navarramedia.com slash support. There you'll be able to set up a regular donation from just £1 a month. You can also find the link in the description box below. Now let's get back to Barnaby because next he asked Rhys Mogg some questions of his own. It's, uh, you, just because people like you spent thousands of years murdering us, I don't think Palestinians... People like me did not price. do that, actually. Well, you can't, you can't blame Europe me. Did. White Christian You Europe can't blame did. me for you know, things you know that had nothing do? to do with me. Do you know me. why I do? Do you know why I do? Because the same logic that says that some life is worthwhile and other lives aren't, that logic that no, for centuries all life, Christian all Europe life is valuable. All life is valuable. But now, surely, that same logic is meted out to Palestinians Surely the state of Israel... Surely the state of Israel has the right to defend itself. Palestinians who are ethnically cleansed to pay for Europe's But they're not ethnically cleansed. This just isn't true. They're not eth ethnically cleansed. That Why the, is Gaza the most, one of the, the most densely populated places the in the Israeli world? state Why? is trying to defend itself following an appalling attack. Why is and it's Gaza trying to get terrorists. In the world? And these terrorists are using human shields um, to protect themselves. That's the thing that ought, you ought to be condemning. Repeatedly, the Israeli state has made claims about human shields, which have been exposed by And now accepted by the United Nations. By, by, the head of the United Nations, we had on a clip 10 minutes ago with the head of the United Nations saying human shields I, I were being used. I just don't understand. So are you now saying he's lying? I just don't understand why you're kind of visibly happy at the ability to justify the murder of enormous numbers of innocent people. The IDF's headquarters, the IDF's headquarters is in a residential neighborhood in Tel Aviv. Nobody. According to any definition that Israel uses, that means Israel mm. uses human shields. It doesn't mean- Nobody it doesn't wants mean innocent people to be killed. Nobody wants innocent people to be killed. So do you think Britain should stop funding and supporting it? Except, except Hamas wants innocent people to be killed. No, they, Hamas, Hamas, Hamas kills- aren't people, Hamas aren't the people sending weapons to the Israeli state which has killed 4,000 children. Your government is, so do you support it? Hamas is the one that killed innocent people and killed babies. Deliberately, children, Jacob. Deliberately, so Hamas goes out and kills, as a matter of policy, innocent people. I want to and know what... then they hide behind innocent people to avoid justice. I just think Barnaby showed him how it's done, didn't he? Uh, and I, he makes a really important point there, which is: look, of course, there are many injustices done in the world, 
But Britain is a firm political ally of Israel. We sell arms to them. We have increasingly tight uh, economic relations with them. Very few people in public life in this country would say Hamas are wonderful, they're good people, they're virtuous, they're lovely. There are, however, many powerful people who say precisely those things about the Israeli government. That's an important thing to highlight, albeit it happens very rarely on the media. Uh, finally, Barnaby gave his vision for Israel and its future. Do you know what I want? I'm, I'm a Jew, right? I want to be able to go and pray at the Western Wall. And I want to be able to pray there next to my Palestinian friends, Muslims and Christians, in peace and freedom. It's not possible. I don't want to pray under a gun that occupies and oppresses the indigenous people of Palestine. I don't want to pray. I don't want to go to parties, as people went to parties on October the 7th, five miles away from an open-air prison in which 2.2 million people are penned in without access to sufficient food and water. So, I don't want that status quo. I want okay, to I understand end. that. So I are you therefore willing to, you. to condemn the actions on the 7th of October? I want a world where it doesn't happen. No, so are you willing to I condemn it, or are you in fact happen. sitting here justifying I want it? I, of course I'm not justifying it. So you're willing to condemn it as an act of terrorism? Of course I'm not justifying it. I want. And is a state entitled to defend itself against an act of terrorism? To, let me just ask the question back to you. Are you willing to condemn the murder of 10,000 people, including 4,000 children, often supported by the British state, and of whose parliament you are a member? I are support, I support the, the Israeli the state's right to defend mm -hmm. itself Do you support against the, the attacks on innocent civilians, Do you support the which you are not being clear about condemning. Do you support the displacement of 300 children in recent weeks in the are you are you are you willing state. are you, you willing that? to condemn this attack on the 7th of I October I don't want anyone You're to die. not I'm afraid Barnaby isn't die. willing Jacob, to attack to condemn to Hamas I don't want anyone attack. to die but it's your As always let me know your thoughts mailmogatgbnews.com coming up you've had ages to bang on This is really interesting right because Barnaby so overwhelmingly won that debate. He rebutted all of the points made by Rhys Mogg. He very clearly illustrated the fact that we aren't looking at two rivals here who, who share any kind of military, political, economic parity when it comes to the Palestinians and Israel. And so invariably, Jacob Rhys Mogg has to say, will you condemn? Will you condone? Now, this is really interesting because when I go on these kinds of shows, if people say, will you condemn Hamas? I say, of course I'll condemn Hamas. You shouldn't kill civilians. Will you now condemn the 30 years of illegal settlements in the West Bank, which have happened every single day in contravention of international law and completely undermining the Oslo Accords and any kind of peace process, which we've had since 1990 and 1994, to be specific, I think, with the Oslo Accords? Will you condemn that? Because if you won't condemn that, then you have absolutely no right to ask other people to condemn other things. I will happily condemn both of them. But again, you don't find very much of that in the media and certainly not from our politicians either. Next story. At least 10,000 civilians have died in Gaza and we have no idea at what point Israel will stop its relentless attacks. But even if the fighting stopped tomorrow or next week or next month, what then? Is Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu speaking to ABC News about how Gaza will be administered once the present fighting comes to an end? President Biden has said that it would be a mistake for Israel to occupy Gaza. Who should govern Gaza when this is over? Those who don't want to uh, continue the way of Hamas, it certainly is not, uh, uh, I think Israel will, for uh, an indefinite period, will have the overall uh, security responsibility because we've seen what happens when we don't have it. When we don't have that security responsibility, what we have is the eruption of uh, Hamas terror on a scale that we couldn't imagine. 
Now, those sentiments were repeated by defense analyst Avi Melamed on I-24, which is Israel's answer to Al Jazeera. Israel basically says, look, once we are done with crushing the major military spine of Hamas, we understand that it's not the end of the story yet because there will be remains, so to speaking. There will be cells. There will be an attempt to rebuild and to reactivate Hamas and Islamic Jihad military capacities. The idea is basically that Israel will not fully control the Gaza Strip following that, but basically Israel will have the free ability to operate in Gaza Strip to intercept, to hunt down, to catch um, uh, remains or cells of Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and other. The presence of Israel in Gaza Strip post the crushing of Hamas military uh, spine will enable Israel more easily to to chase those people, to hunt them down, and basically to make sure that they will not be able to rebuild this whole infrastructure. Will that not lead to accusations uh, that Israel is occupying the Gaza Strip? It may lead to the accusations, but we uh, but we have to remember accusation. But we have to remember that in the end of the day, it's not that Israel will be there solely alone. There will be other players on the ground as part of these arrangements of the post-war day, and Israel, as part of those arrangements, will be able to continue and to operate on the ground for intercepting, for hunting down, and for preventing the re-establishing of a military infrastructure of Hamas and Islamic Jihad. So Israel will remain active in Gaza, quote, hunting down Hamas, even after the war is, quote, over. But given thousands of civilians have already died, it begs a question. Will civilian casualties be accepted as legitimate collateral damage in supposed peacetime? And if so, and that seems inevitable, to what extent is it accurate to say the war is actually over? Moya, Netanyahu is immensely unpopular right now. The polling is really massively against him. He said he can't really be judged for the security breach on October 7th until the war is over. So a permanent occupation of sorts helps him politically, doesn't it? Yeah, I I think there's three things sort of to say here concerning Netanyahu himself, then the Israeli public, and then this dominant line that's emerged about security. Firstly, Netanyahu has no intention of being judged for this security breach. That's why he's talking about, you know, we have to go hard on security. We have to, you know, have total control of the Gaza Strip. This is a leader who has returned to this ultimate position of power three different times. And each time he's got more hard line. He I think personally, he sacrifices a little bit more of his humanity every time in pursuit of power. He's long dodged any sort of what we would call accountability for becoming more hardline and becoming more corrupt. There are currently three outstanding corruption cases against him. He's got no intention of answering them either. Um, So Netanyahu isn't looking to be dislodged and he will do anything, pursue any policy in order to defer that day of judgment, as it were. Secondly, Israelis might be calling for Netanyahu's scout, but they're not en masse calling for a change in policy. They voted that far-right government in. There is real broad support for the war. If you read reports from Israel that, you know, in the aftermath of these attacks, the, the 7th of October attacks, most of Israeli society is furious at Benjamin Netanyahu, but they have accepted this, what we're calling a war, I would call it, you know, a campaign, a military assault, a campaign of genocide personally. But Israeli society has accepted this this bombardment of Gaza that's been going on for a month now, that's killed 10,000 people as 
justified as self-defense. They have taken that line that it is to provide them further security, that's to get rid of the Hamas. It's a necessary evil. And they have swallowed it whole. You look at the protest movements that were opposing Netanyahu and the government before the war, like Brothers in Arms. They have pivoted to actually providing aid to those affected by war and also supporting the military. Now, a group like Brothers in Arms is really interesting. They were formed in order to oppose the judicial reform that Netanyahu and his government were pushing through, which would remove some of you know the, the rights that Israeli citizens, uh, not Palestinian citizens in Israel and not Palestinians, not Arab citizens in Israel, but Israeli citizens, because there's already a difference in legal rights there, is the, some of the legal rights that Israeli citizens had. It would bypass the Supreme Court. It would take the country further to being an autocracy. And those protest movements they were seen as a threat by Netanyahu and his government, but they're only seen as a threat within the internal sort of representation of Israeli citizens. They're not interested in Palestinian liberation. They, you know, they're ex-IDF reservists. Group members had previously had sort of violent opposition to anti-occupation protests that took place in the West Bank. Um, but these are the groups that are being positioned as the threats to Netanyahu. These, what I would, you know, if we looked from the outside, gov, um, groups that are already pretty white, white, right wing and in favour of like this military state are being positioned as the government watchdog. When your government watchdog is already there politically, already on the right, what does that say about majority public opinion? And what does that say about the limits of political opposition in a population that's been conditioned to see themselves always in this mode of, you know, self-defense that an attack on Israel has to mean that Israel pushes its full might. We're getting calls for nuclear war, nuclear war against Gaza right now. Um, and I saw a video today where a young woman who was a young Israeli woman was talking about how horrible it was, this bombing, but saying, what can we do? It's the only thing we can do in order to protect ourselves. Um, so you see this years of conditioning under a nationalist state, plus this grief and this fear that might be a cocktail for Netanyahu's unpopularity, but it's also been weaponized um, so that people support the war, that people are mobilizing in support of the Israeli state, even while they oppose Netanyahu himself. Um, and so what you're also seeing here, the third thing is a call for more security. So they're like, Netanyahu has to go. He failed us on security. You know, Bibi failed. He didn't give us enough security. But what we have to ask the question of is, what are they calling for when they say security? What is, what is the majority of the Israeli population saying when they say we need more security? Because there is no security when you're operating in an apartheid state. There are no walls high enough that to stop a people suppressed trying to break out of that apartheid state. But when they talk about security, I don't think they mean what I would mean when I say there has to be security. What I mean when I say security is security comes from true peace, peace that will only be achieved when the Palestinian right to equality, land and liberation is recognized and enacted. I don't think the this Israeli population who've been conditioned for years and years and years um, to support the Israeli state, who have voted for a really far right government, mean they want peace or they want the Palestinian, you know, or they want a one-state solution when they talk about security. Um, I think the majority opinion is saying, you know, the logical conclu conclusion to security is actually the campaign that's being pursued now, this complete camp this campaign of ethnic cleansing, this campaign of bombing, this campaign of displacement, this idea of we can't do anything because it's the only way we're going to get rid of of Hamas. And there are dissenting voices in Israel. You know, if you look at the people who are supporting 
the war, yes, it is majority uh, Jewish-Israeli population. There are also Jewish-Israelis that oppose this war. There are also Palestinian Arab citizens in Israel who oppose it. But you don't hear from them because dissent is being so suppressed in Israel that people are being arrested en masse and people, even for posting things on social media in solidarity. So you're not going to hear that dissent. Um, overall, the, there's two different things. Netanyahu might have to go. Netanyahu's scout will go. But the war that he is in, he is... Um, laid the foundation for the war that he has enacted, the war that he has spent years and years and years while in power, making sure would be supported by the Israeli population. I think that will continue. Yeah, I think that's so eloquently put. And, and, and this is really, really critical because, of course, there are dissenting voices in Israel. Of course there are. And there are many more than we hear because the prevailing political culture there is kind of creating big disincentives to publicly uh, say anything. So they do exist. But at the same time, I don't think the extent of that should be overstated. You know, I think 60% of Israelis say that they're quote-unquote right-wing. That rises to 70% amongst the young. You have two political parties right now in government who don't even allow women to stand for political office. You have somebody like Ben Gavir, who's in charge of a very important job with regards to domestic security for Israel. So the political complexion of Israel is incredibly right-wing. And when you call somebody like Ben Gavir or Smotrich, you know, when you call these people... Um, uh, right-wing national populists, you know, they are so right-wing, they make Salvini, uh, or, or actually, frankly, even somebody like Le Pen, look like liberals. And I'm not exaggerating. And I think this is really, again, something which is lost in our conversation when covering this uh, political crisis, because, yeah, it doesn't really suit uh, our media. Um, just quickly, if you appreciate our coverage on Israel's war on Gaza, then do make sure to like our video. It's a free way of making sure this video gets out to more people. Now, not everyone agrees on what's best to keep both Israelis and Palestinians safe. Here's James Schneider on Talk TV with his own proposals. But before he could relay his views, Nadine Dorries, who was presenting, said something truly extraordinary. Do you believe that if Israel now, what do you think would happen if Israel were to say now, okay, ceasefire, we are laying down our arms. I'll tell you what would happen. There would be another Holocaust. That's what would happen. No, what do you I'm think? Medieval. What do you think Hamas would do if that was the situation? Israel has to defend N itself. N Nadine, okay. and do you N think they Nadine, can do that with okay. no casualties? Okay, Nadine, please don't say there'd be another Holocaust because you are conjuring up enormous fears, enormous understandable fears in Jewish people who have that absolute horror, that industrial slaughter, that industrial-scale genocide. James, it's been reported so, they put babies so, in ovens. That's as close to the Holocaust as you can get. It's been reported that Hamas terrorists put Israeli okay, babies in ovens. Okay, We're, and I've, I've also seen that somewhere else debunked, but I'm not going get to the, the, get into the specifics of the claim. I'll come back to your central point. What should a statesperson-like leader of Israel do in response to the events of the 7th of October. First, they should... Okay, we're going to have to move on because we have to go into the break. So, so if you just get... Because I'm listening to you. I'm, I'm not trying to cut you short, but mm -hmm. if you can... So first, they should have reinforced the, uh, the kibbutz in, uh, in the Negev bordering Gaza. They, part of the reason there are not enough troops there to defend is because they're in the West Bank overseeing the ethnic True. cleansing of Palestinians there. And then the next thing to do is to sue for peace. And I know that sounds extremely difficult after horrible things are done, and it is extremely difficult. But the only 
long-term solution to this conflict is to end the dispossession of the Palestinian people and to have some form of settlement with all the Palestinian and all the Israeli political, political parties. That would lead to fewer deaths, both Palestinian and Israeli, in the short, medium and long term. James, we've got to go to break, but the two-state solution has been on the table for a very long time. The and people who won't sign up to it are Hamas. Absolute so nonsense. It's ahistorical. It would have nonsense. been in place. It is ahistorical nonsense, by the way. Before I go over to you, Moya, I, I want to clarify that. There has been um, a, a set of you know, uh, peace agreements which have been broadly adhered to by basically one party since Oslo in the mid-1990s, and that is the Palestinian Authority. Every single day since the Oslo Accords, there have been illegal settlements being built. Every single day. While the Palestinian Authority do what they said they would do, and effectively, they are still tarred with the same brush as Hamas, uh, they're still viewed as quasi-criminals by many people in European and American politics. And of course, by the Israeli right, as I've already said, they are the people who dominate Israeli public life. And yet even somebody like Nadine Dorries, who's been in government, she's now on television, she can't get the basic facts right. Uh, Moya Schneider, Mr. Schneider, James Schneider, was exasperated when she was talking there, and understandably so, because it was quite abhorrent, the kinds of associations and the kind of picture she was attempting to um, evoke. Is this a normal way to be carrying on? And is that a snapshot uh, in terms of the future of broadcast media in this country, where everybody increasingly sounds like a even more hysterical version of Jeremy Carl? What do you mean future, Aaron? It's the present. It's right now. Uh, there is one thing that I do... That I've been thinking consistently across the coverage that has been, you know, shown of uh, the Palestine crisis, and when I'm watching these shows, when I am watching the likes of James Schneider, the likes of Barnaby Rain, you know, people going on, the, you know, Yara Eid, the the Palestinian journalists who have managed to get through from Gaza and also the West Bank and be able to talk to. Western media. The one thing, I, there's, there's two things actually, I think. One is like, oh my God, I can't believe you have to endure these questions. The other thing, I am actually fucking glad. I'm glad at how stupid the line of questioning is because the answers and the eloquence that is given in return and the way that they are setting out, you know, their facts and the reality of the situation in Palestine and the history is a huge education. And I'm glad that the right wing, you know, media, the centrist media in this country doesn't have people who are smart enough or respectful enough to do their research because it's really fucking showing now. And I'm sorry for swearing twice, but it's, they're really showing their ass. And what's good, what's good about that is you watch these, you know, you watch these journalists, you watch these um, commentators come on and make the case and outline exactly what's happened and outline, you know, why there is, what, what's happening with the occupation, what's happening with the apartheid state. And they bring their years of knowledge and learning. And you watch Nadine Doris say something ridiculous and you think, well, okay, well, Nadine Doris is ridiculous. And you're seeing that, I think, reflected in the way in British support for a ceasefire. I think you are starting to see um, how the broadcast media setup we have, where everything's entertainment and everything's, you know, this hysterical level does kind of fall apart in my view and doesn't have the same sort of power that it might have done to start these culture wars when it's an issue that is so 
clear and uncomplicated. Uh, and it's very much, okay, 10,000 people, 10,000 people have been killed in this tiny, densely populated, occupied territory where for years and years and years they haven't had equal rights. They haven't had dominion over their own futures, their own lives. They've been living as not even second class citizens, third class citizens in their own in their own space, in their own region that they've been and they've been displaced from homes over years and years and years by this other country. And now this other this other state, this other country is saying, well, you know, there was this horrible atrocity happened, but we have to kill 10,000 people to make it right. Plus, we're going to carry this on. We're not going to cause a ceasefire. And you look at that and you look at Nadine Dorries trying to make these arguments, especially to people, you know, like James Schneider, these Jewish individuals say, well, it's another Holocaust. And you watch them demolish those kind of arguments. And I think, thank fucking God that our media is so stupid. Uh, well, I mean, thank God. Also, I'd say uh, quite right in so much as thank God there are people there to show them how stupid they are. And that is something that actually I should say is a really big difference from, from 20 years ago. You, you mentioned um, the Iraq war protests a little bit earlier on. I, I was on those demonstrations I was on the student demonstrations in 2010. And the extent to which people who went on those kinds of protests were misrepresented by legacy media, thankfully, can never happen again. Because for whatever criticisms we might, we might have of social media, of YouTube, uh, the old way of broadcasting a truth or rather mistruth uh, can no longer be sustained. Partly because of outlets like Navarro Media, of course, there are others too, but also really because of individual journalists building up a huge profile, real credibility on particular issues. And so like you say, Moya, you can look at somebody like Barnaby Ray and you say, well, I know that this person on foreign policy is much more credible, thoughtful, um, considered, informed than somebody like Jacob Rees-Mogg. You know, you can make your own mind up, but I, I, I can... Uh, I can imagine what most people would conclude if they saw the GB News clip, or in this case, uh, James Schneider with uh, Nadine Dorries. Um, Moya, you know, Don't Look Up, which is about climate change. It was a great sort of satire of how legacy media fails to take seriously the existential threat of an asteroid uh, colliding with our planet, but really it's meant to be an analogy for climate change, our inability to deal with existential risk in the 21st century. And I thought in a way that that doesn't quite go far enough because what we're seeing is, like you say, a genocide in real time. If you accept the, the figures of the IDF, 1% of the, the, the Gazan population has been killed in a month. If you accept Gaza's figures, it's 0.5%. I think most people in most times in most places would accept that's commensurate with genocide. However, in the British legacy media, nobody is saying that unless it's people like you or me or James Schneider or Barnaby Rain. Um it's pretty it's pretty bad, isn't it? When, like you say, you have this kind of the trivialization of 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 political journalism, the 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 kind of daytime TVification of political commentary about something as serious as four thousand children being killed in a conflict. I mean, I agree. I, I think there is space for talk shows and analysis, otherwise Navarra Live would be dying a very quick death. Um what what I think it, you know. Yes, the media landscape we have trivializes, it makes light of things, it's obsessed with this idea of politics being a game. I think one example that's really, um, and sorry to go into our audience about media because I know they hate it when we talk about the ins and outs of this, but one example that has been really 
you know, galling to me is reading Politico every morning. Now, Politico, for those who don't know, is a newsletter which gives you sort of like the parliamentary updates of the day. And it's written this sort of like light sneering tone. And let me tell you something, when that light sneering tone is making fun of even people objecting to the deaths of 10,000 people who are being bombed to shit, then that light sneering tone gets even more sort of let's use the word we used earlier, inappropriate. It, you realise how unserious a lot of our political establishment is or how they make politics unserious for the rest of us because they think, you know, these, these tawdry concerns, oh, there was a line in Politico the other day, the left is still not happy about Labour not calling for a ceasefire, but when are they ever happy? Do you know what you're talking about? Do you know what you're referring to? Do you want to have some have some respect for those people who've been killed under the most horrific circumstances? We're also seeing these denials, these double downs, these erasures of what it really means, um, what a Palestinian humanity really means. But what I would say about this, you know, the talk, the talk, the talk-esque entertainment landscape of media that we're talking about specifically here, the Nadine Dorries, the Politicos, et cetera, et cetera, because Talk TV, GB News, that's not legacy media per se. There might be people within it who are part of the establishment, but it's not legacy media. It's this new bombastic form of media that aims to position these figures, these you know politicians, these powerful people as these outsiders. But it's not quite, it's not legacy media. That's a different thing. Anyway, um, what I was saying about this moment though, is when you have a media like the establishment media, like these new forms of right-wing media that is really disconnected from what people on the ground are able to see with their own eyes, what they're able to hear, what social media is showing them about the reality of this military campaign against people in Gaza, of the military campaign against people in the West Bank. What, what you get there is them saying, you know what, this media is not telling us the truth. It's not telling me things that I can actually go and verify with my own you know, research skills. It's right there in front of me. We talk about critical thinking a lot, but you don't even need loads of it to see the reality of what's going on in Palestine. You just need an internet connection um, and access to you know, Palestinian journalists or journalists like Double Dan News, Navarra, etc., Al Jazeera particularly. And what I think is born out of moments like this are new forms of media. You saw, you know, Navarra Media was born out of the 2010 student movement and the dissatisfaction as well with the way that media was reporting both that and wider left movements. I think you'll see this again. You're seeing an entire well maybe entire generation is an overstatement but to me it feels like a generation I feel like this is a huge radicalizing moment I've had people contact me about their disgust with the way that media is reporting this who identify themselves as you know small c conservatives it goes along with what I was saying earlier about this not being an issue that is drawn across those traditional left right political lines instead as an issue where people are really thinking about you know what does this mean as a human rights issue? What does this mean in terms of basic empathy, compassion, and wanting other people to have the same rights that I do? And I think because of that, the dissatisfaction you'll see with media will really push people to, you know, invest in other forms of media. You've seen it with the expansion of like Navarra's audience over the last few weeks. And we are doing, you know, I think we do good work, but I would say we are doing like the bare minimum any media organization should be doing at this point in time. Um, and I do think you will start to see people coming out of this who disconnect entirely from the forms of media they might be investing in already and they actually think okay well I am going to start paying for those that news I am going to do the things that I wasn't before because previously we've seen this data which shows that people aren't willing to invest in news they aren't willing to you know um 
put their money where their mouth is. But I think at radicalizing moments like this, people suddenly realize the value of a news source again. They want to watch this rolling coverage. They want to watch coverage that actually provides analysis that lines up a bit with what they are seeing. And the way that both legacy and new forms of media in the United Kingdom, at least, are falling down on every level in doing that and the disrespect they're showing to the victims of this military campaign, I do think will push people into investing in news in a way they haven't before, personally. That's just my pop psychology, but what do I know? Yeah, let a thousand flowers bloom when it comes to new media. Quickly, before we go on to the next story, uh, there was this polling out, which everybody's talked about, you know, 76% of the UK public supports a, a ceasefire. Invariably, what's not mentioned is those who oppose a ceasefire. Now, this is really, really interesting because 3%, if I remember correctly, 3% strongly oppose a ceasefire and 5% just broadly oppose a ceasefire. And yet that 3% that strongly oppose a ceasefire is pervasive uh, across much of the media and political class. And like you say, Moya, when you have that disconnect between popular opinion um, and the sort of received wisdom of the political media class, then of course people look for their news elsewhere. Next story. Now, it was only two weeks ago that these dramatic scenes unfolded on the border between Gaza and Egypt. Uh, this was the moment that Israeli hostages Yocheved Lifshitz and Nurit Cooper were released by Hamas and handed over to the Palestinian Red Crescent. In this particularly striking moment, Lifshitz took the hand of her former captor as she departed and said the word Shalom. Lefschitz's daughter, Sharona, has now appeared on Newsnight, where Victoria Derbyshire asked her this. Has she been changed by her experience at all? I think her core beliefs have not shifted. She fought all her life for, um, to create a place between the river and the sea that is shared by both people. Um, she feels just the same now. She said to me a few days ago that we made peace with the Germans and we will have to make peace with the Palestinians. I think having just been the victim of this and still holding this belief, um, she's very much she's very much feeling that there is no alternative. Before I go on, uh, that lady just then, Sharone, uh, said uh, the river and the sea. Now, of course, that was the exact same formulation that Andy MacDonald used, and he's since been suspended from the Labour Party. So I hope she doesn't want to stand at any point for Labour as a councillor or a prospective parliamentary candidate. But I have to say, this is quite an extraordinary moment. The daughter of a freed hostage using that phrase while also apparently calling for a peaceful transition to a single state shared by both Israelis and Palestinians. In other words, reviving the prospect of the one-state solution, of the kind that most Western leaders refuse to consider or simply label as anti-Semitic. Uh, Sharona Lifshitz also talked about her hopes for how this war will play out. You will have heard us reporting tonight that uh, Israeli Defence Force troops are surrounding Gaza City. Obviously, there are many hostages still there. What do you want to see happen there? I am not a political strategist. I am for life. It's horrific to see the suffering of the children of Gaza. 
um, any human being will find that horrific um, because we share humanity. I wish also to remind people that 77 people from my community are there as well and they are affected by it. Together with Hamas, they are quite safe, maybe some of them, because they are underneath. And Hamas is a terrorist organization who is quite willing to put his own women and children as human shield. So we are talking about an impossible situation for civilians. I would like to see a solution to it. I would like us to work towards the possibility of life together. There's, you know, and I would love the hostages to come back. I think bringing back the hostages is the fastest way to end this round of devastation and perhaps work towards something that is deserved of the people there. It's so rare to hear a calm, informed voice, uh, but also someone who's deeply connected to ongoing events. Moya, what was your reaction to that clip? Well, you call it extraordinary, and I think it is a very important intervention. I would say it's not as extraordinary as you think. You look in the context in which she's speaking. What's interesting about the kibbutzes that um, Hamas attacked on the 7th of October is that they're not as representative of the majority Israeli population as you know, the, the, the centralized cities are. So the kibbutzes often, they have aging populations, but a lot of those people who lived in them were what some people term as left-leaning, um, but they were, they were often people who, even though they're part of the Israeli state project and that expansion project, and that can't be removed from the context of why they were living so close to Gaza, um, they also, a lot of them identified or had their political roots in these ideas of like peace and reconciliation. So you look at that political tradition, it confused political tradition, I would add, um, one that believes, you know, you can you can live on the edge of like this occupied air prison and that somehow you're working towards peace and reconciliation, but whatever, you know, that's another conversation. But they were part of this political tradition that is more geared towards that. So to hear a daughter of one of these hostages and to also see that her mother, you know, turned to the person who'd been holding a hostage and wanted to say, you know, shalom, peace, you know, they wanted to push for this idea of peace and reconciliation isn't actually that extraordinary when you look at that context that they lived in, the things that they represent. What is worrying to me is there has been a change in these demographics. There were, you know, there were, already living on the outskirts of um, current Israeli territory. Um, but the kibbutz, the makeup of the kibbutz, the political makeup of the kibbutz is a changing that I've read an article recently which was saying attitudes were hardening anyway to the right. There is, like all Israeli society, there is this further push to the right, which when you already live in a state which is a settler colonial state that is based upon this idea of expansion and displacing another population, then how much further to the right can that state project really get? We are seeing the logical endpoint of that right now. Um, so why I think it is really important and that we point to that, we cannot just rest on this idea of, oh, this person says it, so that's, you know, it's okay. Lots of people have been talking about the one state solution um, as being the only way forward now because the two state solution has been tried. It's dead in, it's dead in the water. It's 20 years, I think. Am I doing my maths right? Am I being 30 years? I'm not good at maths. 30, 30 years since 1993 when the first Oslo Accord was signed. Um, and 
who blocked that as we've been talking about who every single time israel the state of israel the people who are in governments running israel stopped that solution even though they got what many people think was you know a really good deal a much better deal than they should have got a deal that was unjust to the palestinians still the palestinian government signed those accords they agreed to work towards a peace process that peace process was stymied by a state that did not want to give any ground and only wanted to expand further so this this idea of like peace and reconciliation via two-state solution is not going to work the only way and i heard um Weta kanafa who used to run al jazeera former director general of al jazeera palestinian journalist who hasn't been able to go back to his home for 30 years because of the way that Palestinians' rights are set up in the region. Um, he was saying on a panel the other day, the one-state solution is the only way forward and that he really does believe it is possible if people open their minds somewhat, but it's not possible with the current government uh, that is running Israel. Um, you know, probably not even Hamas either, but Israel particularly, it's not possible with them currently, but the populations themselves, they might be more geared towards peace. This idea that, you know, there could be a coming together. Extraordinary things have to happen in order for peace to be achieved. We've seen in other countries where these have happened to some degree. And if the Palestinians and Jewish Israelis can still believe in a one-state solution, then I think we also have to back a one-state solution as well. Um, but you know, this this intervention should be put in its political context. Um, and I think I think that it is a necessary one for our media to hear in particular, but it's not one as, that's as alien as we might think, to residents of that region. Yeah, the thing around the um, the people in the kibbutzim is 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 totally uh, correct. You know, the, the the majority of people that were present in Israel at the at the start of the country uh, during its founding in 1948, many of them would have had what would have been viewed in Europe as left wing politics. Um, the Labour Party of Israel very successful for many many decades. It no longer is, uh, and the political trajectory of the country over time has obviously been to the right, massively to the right and massively towards religious orthodoxy. There's one statistic here which I find remarkable. A 2021 study of 16 to 18-year-olds found that 66% of ultra-Orthodox Jews, quote, hated Arabs. Um, as I've said already, 60% of Israelis view themselves as right-wing. That rises to 70% amongst the young. So platitudes of, of young people being more progressive, more open-minded, uh, simply not true women looking at the state of Israel. We haven't got time for it today, Moya, but I would say just quickly in response to the one and two-state solution thing, I think, frankly, both of them are unlikely. I don't think a two-state solution's failed. I think that one of the parties simply didn't play ball. And I don't see why the answer, therefore, is that they would play ball with a one-state solution. I think they're not playing ball with either of them. And I think comparisons to South Africa, and this is a great conversation, it's an important conversation, and ultimately, it's for Palestinians to decide, of course. But the idea that this is analogous to South Africa, I would push back on because, you know, Israel has a population of 10 million, um, 8 million are Israeli Jews, 2, two million are Arabs. Uh, there are, what, 5.5 million Palestinians, Palestinian Arabs. So you have relative parity, really, 7, 8 million apiece, Arabs and Israeli Jews. Is that comparable to South Africa? We have this tiny white minority um, and they understand at a certain point they can no longer maintain political power. There is a settlement which massively favours them, uh, but gives black uh, South Africans certain political and civil rights, including the vote, um, and that works. I think the comparisons to South Africa or British India, I don't know if that's quite correct. I hope I'm wrong. Clearly, in abstraction, a one-state solution is a, is, a, is a better way to go because 
Zionism, even liberal Zionism, is predicated on the idea that you must have an ethnic majority within a state. That is clearly a reprehensible idea to liberals and socialists in the West. So the idea of a, a liberal Zionist state, I, I, I completely disagree with. But in terms of what's more likely a one or two state solution, I mean, my view is it's a two state solution. People are going to disagree about that. But that's the, that's the, that's the upside of what's happening. And there aren't many of those is that not only are people becoming more informed about these issues, but also they're having the kinds of conversations like that, which, frankly, are at the heart of what any solution looks like. Uh, a couple of things just before we go. A quick mention of a piece published on NavarraMedia.com today. Claire Heimer reports that hundreds of school children have walked out of an assembly with Labour shadow cabinet member Wes Streeting over the party's stance on the war in Gaza. That was at a school in Streeting's London constituency of Ilford. And you can read more about that on NavarraMedia.com. The link is in the description below. Moya, we got there. We got there despite the power cut. So thanks so much for joining me this evening. We did get there. Um, the one thing, thank you, Aaron. The one thing I would add to this entire show is the line that runs through the stories that have given me a bit of hope today is the refusal to dehumanize people on either side of the conflict. And that is what will lead to true peace in the region eventually. But a lot of people are unfortunately right now pushing for the dehumanization of the Palestinians um, and Israeli counterparts. And we must resist that at any cost. And if you want to resist that with me, you know where I'll be on Saturday, the 11th of November. Yeah, really important to say that. Saturday, midday. Uh, there will be a protest going to the American uh, embassy. Uh, thank you all for watching this evening. This show will be back again tomorrow night from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navarramedia.com support.